Welcome to another episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen. I'm excited to welcome Emily Duncan, Senior Vice President of Federal Affairs at American Electric Power. And Emily, you're on week seven, yes. right? Yeah, that's okay, right. Well, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career and your path to American Electric Power? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so yes, I'm on week seven at American Electric Power, uh, which is a, a large company in the utility industry. Um, I was at a utility prior to this. So I was at National Grid for a little um, a little under eight years. Uh, and for the last two years there, ran their Washington office. So a similar role um, at National Grid to the one I've, I have now at AEP. And then prior to that, I was at the solar industry. So I worked for the Solar Energy Industries Association for about five years, working primarily on tax policy, um, but some regulatory policy as well. Um, but I started my career as an energy regulatory attorney uh, here in Washington. I'm from the Washington area, knew I wanted to come back after law school and have kind of a, a regulatory policy practice. And so um, started out at, at a law firm here in D.C. and was there for about two and a half years before making the shift into, into policy full time. Did you know you wanted to do energy the whole time or was that a no. surprise? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, you know, like all type A Washingtonians, I had this whole plan for my career. And of course, none of it has panned out the way I expected, but it's all been wonderful, right? I think there's all these kind of happy, you know, surprises and um, and different directions that a career can take. And I've been really lucky in that sense. And so, no, I, I really fell into energy. You know, when I was interning at the law firm or doing my summer associate um, gig um, before I became full-time at the law firm, I was looking at a variety of regulatory practices and really loved the people in the energy practice and thought the work was really interesting. And so I just kind of fell into it. I could have easily have done, you know, maritime or healthcare or securities or any number of regulatory practices, but but just really fell in love with the energy one and have never left because it's been so great to be And you never it. regretted not going into maritime? No, <laughs> I haven't. No offense to my maritime <laughs> friends. I'm sure it's really fascinating work, but, um, but no, you know, what I love about energy, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, but it is just so essential to everyone's lives, right? And I think even more so now, I mean, it's always been essential, but so much of what we do and so much of the kind of our daily lives are caught up in energy. Um, and, you know, most people don't think about it, right? They flick a switch and energy, you know, electricity magically appears and they're, they're good to go, right? Um, it's when it's when people don't have that access, um, you know, if there's a storm or an outage when they really realize it. And so I love being part of an industry that's so essential to, to modern life. Yeah, no, and, and I think that actually is a great segue into sort of the conversation about energy, yeah. um, which is so essential, and it is a huge topic of debate, whether you're talking about climate change, whether you're talking about the, the transition to electric vehicles or whatever that might be. So why don't you just talk to me a little bit at a high level of, you know, what's the greatest opportunities and greatest challenges um, for electricity generation in the U.S.? looking ahead. Yeah. So, you know, this is such an amazing time to be in the energy industry. I mean, I think there's kind of this old refrain that, you know, Washington doesn't do anything and Congress doesn't get stuff done. And I think if ever there were a two year period where that was proven wrong, it's been the last two years, certainly in the climate and energy space. Right. So between the passage of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, um, there is just a massive amount of opportunity for clean energy um, and energy generation here in the U.S. Uh, and so it's a really exciting time to be to be a part of it. You know, all of these um, grant opportunities and programs are, you know, are being stood up or being fully funded now at, at DOE and, and DOT and, and um, the alphabet soup of agencies, if you will. Um, and and AEP, AEP is really excited to, to be a part of that. Um, and then with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, these tax incentives that are really going to drive clean energy technologies are going to be so key to creating that certainty that a lot of businesses need to invest in clean technology. And so that's really exciting as well. And so I think there's just a huge opportunity now and a 
real runway for these technologies, these programs, and this investment in clean energy to take off. That, that's fantastic. So there's a ton of investment. And so what do companies and others need to do to really make sure that this investment pays off or it works out? Yeah, I know. So it's a great question. And I think, you know, the way that we've really thought about leveraging it at AEP and in the utility industry across the board is how do we partner with our communities and stakeholders, right? How do we work with our states and um, and the, you know, the, the areas in which we operate in with our customers to ensure that, you know, every dollar that we can capture for our communities is coming to our communities, creating jobs, creating that economic development that's so key to, to America. Um, and so a lot of it is partnership, right? So not only, you know, there's kind of a two-pronged effort, right? One prong is like, you know, what kind of opportunities are attractive to AEP that we want to invest in and, and you know, grants that we want to apply for, but also how do we partner with and help our communities and our local stakeholders, um, you know, approach some of these projects that where the money wouldn't directly go to AEP, but our communities would directly benefit, right? The, the customers that we serve, the, the homes and businesses that we serve, can see a piece of that of that funding. And so that's another area where I think we're really working hard is trying to find those opportunities for our communities and our stakeholders there. And and let's take a step back and and talk about where AEP is yeah. geographically in the communities that you do serve. Yeah, absolutely. So we're in 11 states. We operate in 11 states. We have six operating companies um, serve, um, you know, quite a number of, of customers um, across that service territory, but we are mostly in rural areas, right? We're not in a lot of urban areas. And so I think what's exciting to me about AEP is, you know, we have such an amazing story to tell. When you talk about, you know, whether it's onshoring of domestic manufacturing um, and part of, you know, our supply chain, both in energy and beyond that, um, and you talk about kind of, you know, revitalizing the manufacturing industry in, in America, a lot of that's going to happen in the Midwest where we operate, right? In the states in which we operate in. And a lot of that is bringing that economic development into those rural communities and creating jobs where perhaps there have not been jobs in quite a while, right? Um, and so that to me is really exciting that, you know, the areas in which we operate in are really prime for investment and, and prime for revitalization. Yeah. And and in terms of thinking about like renewable energy sources that are that are going into to the grid and, and to our electricity, what what are you most excited about? What do you think is going to be the the most important one uh, looking ahead? Out, I mean, there's solar, there's hydro, there's nuclear, there's all yeah. kinds of stuff. Is there is there one maybe dark horse that you think is going to yeah, better. you know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, you hate to pick amongst technologies. I love them all. Um, I do have a soft spot in my heart for nuclear. I started my career at, at the NRC and at FERC and, and um, you know, representing clients who appeared before those regulatory bodies. Um, and I think nuclear has had kind of a few opportunities at, at a renaissance, and I think there's another one before it now. And the idea of small modular reactors and, and the potential that, that is in that type of technology to kind of create clean baseload power, but in a more mobile way, more modular way than what we see with the larger nuclear plants that exist today, I think that's really exciting, right? And there's lots of opportunities in our service territory, but also outside of AEP service territory across the country, where I think small modular reactors could make a big difference. Um, but, you know, the whole gamut of it, right? I mean, I think that's the important thing to remember, too, is, you know, diversity in supply is really important, right? We want to make sure that we have consistent and reliable power across the country. Um, and so we want to bring these new technologies on, but recognize there continue to be value in existing technologies as well. Um, so you talked about things that Congress has already done. Yeah. Um, what When you go up and you talk 
to folks on the Hill, like, what are you saying? This is what you need to keep doing or do that's new um, to really facilitate the transition to uh, higher reliance on renewables. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, Congress is is stepping up on, on a big issue right now, which is siting and permitting, right? HR1 hopefully will, will pass the House this week. Um, and we are very excited about siting and permitting. We think that's kind of the next leg of the stool, if you will, right, um, to, to create these projects and to get these projects, you know, shovel ready and and and, um, and projects in the ground. And so, you know, building out that network, whether it's transmission, whether it's distribution, whether it's substations, whatever it is, we need all of that to bring renewable power to the grid and to load. And um, so that's kind of the next hurdle, I think, is getting, you know, siting and permitting meaningful, siting and permitting legislation done and passed so that we can build these projects in a more effective and efficient manner. Okay. Um, let's talk about electric vehicles. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of efforts, a lot of big announcements about, you know, we're going to be done with internal combustion engines by 2035. Um, from where you sit, is that a realistic goal? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember that these transitions often take longer than we expect, or sometimes in, in some cases that we would like, right? I mean, I think we're all, you know, energy is a good example of we're all in this clean, clean energy transition. Some companies are at different spots along that transition, but we're all aiming to get there um, and get to net zero by a certain date. Um, but there's going to be fits and starts. It's important we stay on that road. We don't take any exit ramps, but it's going to be fits and starts. And I think the same is true for EVs, right? Um, I think you will see, and we have seen, right? I mean, here in Washington, you can't turn your head without seeing a Tesla or an EV, right? But that's not the case in every city in America. Mm-hmm. That's not the case, you know, in a lot of our service territory and kind of more rural areas. Um, and so while I think there is a lot of momentum behind EVs, I think there are going to be, again, fits and starts to, to, to EV adoption along the way. I mean, certainly cost. We're seeing costs come down. The tax credits that, you know, the Treasury is going to issue guidance later this week around the electric vehicle tax credits. Um, but certainly tax credits will help drive down the cost of EVs. But the cost of EVs are still unattainable for a lot lot of Americans. There also continues to be range anxiety, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're going to go on a long road trip, are you going to have charging stations along the way that are operable that you don't have to wait for, you know, 30 minutes or 45 <laughs> yep. minutes just to get to the, the charging station to then charge your car for 30 minutes, right? Um, and so there's going to have to be some adaptation, I think, amongst the um, Americans to to, to adopting um, to adopting EVs. Um, so there's all kinds of things that, that are going to play into that. Um, and I think the people who really want EVs have started purchasing them and you kind of gotten that low-hanging fruit of folks yep. who are really interested in EVs, and it's going to get harder to get those folks who may not be as interested right now to to convince them, right, that this is the right move for them. And I think it'll be a combination of costs coming down, you know, the availability of vehicles. There's a lot of domestic manufacturers who are putting out all kinds of models that, that people can choose from, um, you know, and then certainly figuring out that range anxiety piece and making charging widely available and making sure that stations are operable and that they are where people want to charge. Yeah, and and thinking about it in terms of the grid, I was talking to a friend who was sharing a pilot program that her company was doing where people would have their EVs plugged in and that when the grid needed additional energy, they would be pulling energy from um, the vehicle. Yeah. And which sounds really exciting. Um, How far away are we from something like that? Is that kind of a realistic um, sort of surge protector, I guess? (laughs) Oh, I like that. I hadn't heard that surge protector analogy analogy before. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's already kind of a possibility, right? I mean, you already see, like, the F-150 Lightning has the capability to serve as a backup power source. That was part of the Super Bowl ad, I think, as Mm -hmm. I recall, for them. Um, So you can use it as a backup power source if, you know, your home doesn't have power, for example. Um, And there have, to your point, been successful pilots that talk about or have used 
EVs as, as bi-directional, which is a, an industry term, a bi-directional charge um, to supply electricity back into the grid. Honestly, somewhat similar to what we've seen with, you know, solar panels and energy storage, right? Um I think there is a real opportunity there, um, and I think the thing to think about that I find really interesting is, you know, EVs typically are charged at home. That's mostly where people charge their vehicles, right? And they typically can do it overnight. Um, and that tends to be what we consider off-peak, right? Off-peak charging, um, which is not when you know most people are using their electricity in their home because they're asleep. And so there's a real opportunity there to use the grid for you know more efficient purposes, off-peak charging electric vehicles, um, you know, charging up batteries and whatnot, and then using that you know potentially extra power at other times during peak power needs during the day. Um, so I think there's going to be a huge opportunity. There amongst EVs, but also other technologies. Awesome. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear uh, a little bit more about what's coming for the future of energy. Great. Thank you. Every two weeks, Penta measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations toward the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by Penta, accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us at pentagroup.co. Welcome back to What's at Stake. I'm Andrea Christensen here with Emily Duncan, Senior Vice President of Federal Affairs at AAP. We're going to dive back in. So earlier, Emily, you mentioned that AAP is present in a lot of rural communities in the Midwest. Um, talk a little bit about how you're thinking about um, investing and delivering energy uh, to those rural communities. Yeah, so I mean that's a, a big focus of ours, right? In creating economic development opportunities in our states, we have you know entire teams that are really focused and dedicated to that. You know, we are a huge infrastructure company, basically. If you think about it, um, we have plans to invest more than twenty five billion dollars in distribution, distribution and transmission infrastructure, um, and over eight and a half billion dollars in renewables over the next five years. So we are investing a ton just in infrastructure in our communities, which of course um, is great for for the tax base in our community. But in addition to that, we think it's really important to create jobs in our communities, right? Um, and so one of the things we've been really focused on and will continue to be really focused on at AEP is um, getting other companies to invest in our service territory. So, you know, I mentioned that we have um, a significant number of customers over our 11 states. But um, but so our economic development team is, is really focused on, you know, how do we make sure that we're creating, you know, not only energy in these communities, but creating jobs and, and ways to, to keep these communities vibrant. Um, and so, for example, we were part of the effort to bring Intel to, to Columbus, Ohio. Um, that project represents hundreds and hundreds of highly skilled jobs. Um, we're also looking at manufacturing, right, and creating manufacturing opportunities. So all told, we've brought in more than 9,000 new direct jobs to our service territory. And oh, wow. That's that's just the beginning for us, right? We think there's so many more opportunities as we continue, as I mentioned, to onshore domestic manufacturing um, and really beef up kind of the American portion of our supply chains in energy and beyond. Um, I think the CHIPS Act, right, which was another major piece of legislation that Congress has passed over the course of the last year here, um, is also instrumental, right, in creating that domestic supply chain Um for, for our, uh, our country and our economy. And so that's a big focus of ours. I think the other thing, you know, that's kind of top of mind for us as I think about, you know, what policy and, and that interaction with our, our business and our communities is workforce development. We have a really large and vibrant um, union workforce, which is fantastic. We also have, you know, our own kind of management level workforce. And one of the things we're really concerned about in both areas is workforce development. You know, we expect thousands of jobs, um, thousands of people, um, 
um, in our company to retire over the course of the next few years? How are we going to replace those jobs, right? How are we going to find the skilled laborers we need to build all of this infrastructure? Not only the, you know, the distribution and transmission infrastructure I talked about, but we're doing a lot in the broadband space and, and building out our fiber network, um, you know, with EVs coming on board, with more folks electrifying, you know, their homes. How do we ensure that we have the people we need to do all of that work? And so that's a big concern of ours and making sure that we have that skilled labor um, that can that can do those jobs. And so we work really closely with our unions who have excellent apprenticeship programs. We work closely to partner with community colleges and universities in our service territory in the 11 states that we operate in. Um, to ensure that, um, you know, we kind of are building that skill pipeline um, over the course of these next few years here as we start to see more and more retirements in the in the, the economy and in our communities. And so that's another big focus of ours in addition to the economic development. Yeah, and, and that's great. And and I was joking earlier that, you know, you're looking for jobs. All Everyone else in white collar America is like, is AI and ChatGPT right. going to take my job? Right, right. Um, <laughs> so uh, there are jobs available. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. At AEP. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Doing all this obviously requires you to engage with a large set of stakeholders. So yeah. Penta, we're a stakeholder solutions firm. We think about stakeholders in kind of four broad categories, right? We, there's investors, there's employees, there's customers, and there's political actors. Yep. So how do you think about AP about prioritizing, engaging, dealing with tensions between these kinds of stakeholder groups? Like, What's, what's your approach? Yeah, it's a great question. I like, I really like the buckets you've laid out. I mean, because there are, right? There are tensions oftentimes between those groups. Um, I mean, we're seeing it right now, I think, between investors and political actors. There's been this huge movement towards ESG, environment, social governance, and, um, and that's what a lot of our investors are looking for, right? They're looking for how we're making progress in those areas. On the other hand, there are political actors who say, wait a second, why is this a focus, right? We need to be looking at, um, we shouldn't be discriminating against certain energy resources. Um, you know, why are we focused so much on ESG? Uh, and so we're having to kind of walk, you know, that, that's a balance there, right? We've got to do what's right for our investors, but we also need to recognize that our, our the politicians and the people um, who serve our communities have a really, you know, have a point here that we need to kind of understand and get to the bottom of. And so I think, you know, what we really try to do at AEP is have conversations, which I know sounds really simplistic, but I do think sometimes people assume things about, you know, certain segments of the population and um, and move on from there and make moves based off of that. And sometimes those assumptions are false. And so we think it's really important to sit down, have conversations with everyone, regardless of whether we're going to agree or disagree, just to understand where they're coming from. Um, and I do think that helps to kind of get to know people on a personal level, get to understand um, their opinions does help us bridge some of those gaps. It's not a panacea, right? There's going to continue to be differences. And so we're going to have to continue to balance how we approach some of these issues. But I do think communication, open lines of communication and respectful dialogue are really important. I think, you know, going to customers, that's really the heart of what we do, right? That's who we're serving every day. And that's the heart of our business. And so customers are really important to us. We communicate with our customers all the time about what they're looking for, what matters to them and what's important to them. Um, and time and time again, what we hear from customers is they want reliable, affordable power, right? Um, I think throughout this country, whether it's due to inflation, or, you know, recovery from COVID, um, we continue to see, you know, an affordability crisis, right? Yeah. For a lot of our customers, their energy bill is one of the biggest bills that they pay every month. And so it's really incumbent upon us to, while we're making this clean energy transition, keep in mind the fact that affordability has got to be at the top of our list for concerns. And we need to make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind in these communities that we serve and making sure that everybody has a fair shot at access to clean energy, um, but need to do it in a reliable way as well. And so, 
that's really important to us and keeping in constant communication with our customers is key to that. And then finally, for employees, I mean, this is an area where I think AEP also really shines. You know, I've been at the company for only seven weeks, but the first question I ask everybody I meet at AEP is how long have you been here? And it is incredible. I mean, I have very few people I've met who've been there for less than 10 years. And I would say on average, it seems like everybody's been there over 20 years. It's really remarkable. And I think it says a lot about the company and the way the company treats its employees. Um, and then employees want to be there, right? They continue to find opportunities within the company to, to serve. And that's really wonderful. And so I think, you know, looking at what we do, which is such an essential service, I think is really important to our employees and making sure that we do it right um, is also, in a safe manner, of course, is also really important. Um, and so I think it's, you know, going back to kind of the the original theme, right? It's that constant communication between these various stakeholder groups um, and showing up and doing the right thing. Well, it seems like they have the right person to head up their federal oh, uh, affairs and communication with, with, with those groups. Um, all right, we'll transition to, to sort of the, the final and more fun part yeah. of the conversation with a couple of uh, rapid fire questions. So what is one thing people misunderstand about what you do? Yeah, so I think, I mean, for those folks who who don't necessarily live in Washington or work with government closely, I think there is kind of this, um, you know, this this bad view of lobbying, right? Lobbyists are kind of considered this this evil, dirty thing. We often call it the scarlet L, right? Um, I and haven't heard I, that before. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, what I try to tell, I tell my parents this too, right? I'm from the area and they still kind of wonder what the heck I do all day. Um, I do think, you know, the way I view lobbying is it's really about education. You know, we are going up to the Hill or to the administration to talk about issues that they just may not be as familiar with. I mean, how many Hill staffers have the time to understand our energy industry, right? It's really difficult. Difficult. These are complicated issues. And so being able to go up there, represent our customers, represent our communities and our company and talk about the issues that are really important to us, um, that their policies, they being Congress or the administration, their policies would have an impact on, I think is is really what we do. Um, and and that education piece, I think, is so important. Um, and making sure that, you know, everybody has a view of these complex issues and understanding them um, is is vital for not just my company or our customers, right, but for our economy and for our country to continue to, to, to kind of move in an educated and positive way. I think we need lobbyists and advocates on both sides on all issues, right, so that um, the people who are making these decisions can do so in the most educated way. Good defense. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Maybe you're a lawyer. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. What has surprised you most during your career thus far? Oh, gosh. You know, I think what's really impressed me and really been such a benefit to me in, in my career is how willing everybody is to talk about what they do, right? I mean, I have... It is very, very rare that I have ever approached somebody um, for mentorship or um, to, off to, to offer myself up as a mentor to others where somebody has said no, right? I mean, it's just so rare. And I hope this is not unique to Washington. I hope everybody has has these types of um, communities where, you know, where they can serve as a mentor or be mentored. I mean, people are just so willing to talk about what they do, um, to, to share, you know, what they've learned throughout their career. Um, and that's just been hugely beneficial to me is just talking to people about how how they've gotten to where they are um, and if there's things I can learn from them. And so I think that's been my biggest surprise is, you know, I think as I started my career, I was probably really, really shy and not, you know, kind of nervous about walking up to people and asking for their card or asking for their opinion on things. But I have found that almost universally people have been more than happy to spend some time with me um, and tell me a bit more about what they do. Yeah, that that that's great. And it, it also goes to kind of this last question, because a lot of people who come to D.C., they are very young. They're yeah. they're they're excited. Um 
And so that's a really important thing for them to keep in mind. But also, what advice would you give young people who are just starting out in their career here in D.C. and just generally? Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, there's a few kind of adjectives I would use to describe what I, I see as somebody who's starting out their career that I think could really, you know, benefit from if they were proactive, if they were inquisitive, if they're honest, and if they're optimistic. I do think, you know, after after a certain point in your career, you do start to get a little jaded. And so I love hiring young people, working with young people, because I think they tend to have this natural optimism. And I think that really could serve all of us well, right? To remain optimistic, to, you know, there are going to be days, right, where we're, we get a little down. But I think remaining optimistic is really key um, to, being, to being successful, because people want to be around optimistic people, right? People thrive off of that optimism optimism and that positivity. So that's that's really big, I think. And I think being honest is really important, right? That's your brand. That's your value. Showing up and being honest at all times is really important. Um, being proactive is huge. I mean, I'm always looking to, to work with people who are proactive, who, you know, I don't want to micromanage. I want to be able to give you a project and you go out and own it and do it. And I think a lot of managers and, and um, employers are, are looking for things like that. Um, and then finally, inquisitive, right? You know, don't be afraid to ask questions and to understand, you know, better what people do. They're really aren't any dumb questions when you're starting out or frankly even when you're at my point in my career I'm still asking a ton of questions to try to understand um, the complex nature of the industry I work in and so being inquisitive I think you know tells people okay this person's really interested in what they're doing they want to be here they want to learn more and that makes people want to invest in you amazing thank you Um, thanks so much for joining the show today to our listeners thanks for tuning in for another episode of What's at Stake remember to like and subscribe wherever you listen and follow us on Twitter at Pentagroup I'm your host, Andrea Christensen, and thank you for listening.